So I'm down to one cup of coffee. Oh, caffeine. Um, really? Yeah. Thanks to your inspiration. That's right, because I cut it out in March. You're down to one from how many? Uh, I was up to four. Four. What are you? Wow, that's a big difference. What, what do you notice? Um, I'm, I'm clearer mentally. I actually am more sustained throughout the course of the day. Uh, I don't get tired unless I just didn't sleep well the night before. And water keeps me alert longer because I don't have the crash. Do you track you track your sleep crash. with the thing, right? With the Fitbit. With the Fitbit, yeah. Are you getting more, higher quality that's, sleep? That's that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I <laughs> my wife keeps asking when I'm going to cut it out because I'm on that journey. And I'm. Are you not, planning to cut it? I mean, I, I'm not ready to yet. I was originally planning to cut it out, but I'm not ready to yet. I cut it out because I'm genetic. I'm just really sensitive to caffeine. So yeah. I, I mean, so, I think there's a place for it in people's yeah. lives and I'm sad. I can't drink it anymore, but I, I still like it. So I still take it, but one cup a day. And I, and I love, I love my one cup a day. I enjoy it much better. Is so, that like a ritual? Uh, yes. I, and I, and I've got the, I, I have it at the same time every day. Mm-hmm. Um, unless I slept in or something to that nature. And occasionally I'll go for two if I really, really need it, but I fight the urge as much as I can. And it actually ends up working out. So for all of these things that you, you talk about recorded or not, I do take, take advice or I heed advice once in a while. And for this one, I am grateful. It's like a reverse stick day. So thank you. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. Welcome back or welcome to More in Common if this is your first time with us. Uh, We are a podcast that seeks to inspire a thoughtful and honest conversation that leads to action and positive change, ultimately exposing that we have more in common than that which divides us, even if it's rooted in differing points of view. You can check us out at www.moreincommonpod.com. We have blogs, merchandise, uh, access to our Patreon page. If you want to support us along this journey, of course, you can listen to our podcasts there and, and other things continue to, to develop and grow on the website. So, Rodney, uh, before, we, before we talk about our, our guest today... You want to talk about branded plants? I do. Branded plants. I, that, that hasn't come to our, t- our store yet. But let's talk about David instead. Let's, let's talk, talk about, about David. David. What, let's what, talk about David. Big takeaways. Uh, his theory on Kaepernick. When, it, when I first heard it, I thought it was going to be rubbish. And it's actually pretty solid. I think the first time you heard it was when I told you about it. And yeah. I wasn't a big fan of it at the time. I don't know how I feel about it yet, but yeah, continue. Well, yeah, because you had mentioned it. You said uh, we. one of the things we're going to talk about is David's theory or thoughts on how Kaepernick got Trump elected. And I scoffed and said, this dude, come on. <laughs> and then I heard it, and it's actually a well-thought-out explanation on how the backlash of the country post-Obama um, white America's feelings are kind of hurt and Kaepernick on top of that like really you gonna do that at football mm. at football mm. like okay yep. so yeah I, I see it I definitely see it mm-hmm. secondly power of intent and knowing who you are being intentional with how he raised how they raise their children and how he goes about his daily life and just the, the going about work and the confidence to just be you you know he's he calls it out he's like look man i'm i i look at those that are selfless and they go out and do great things in the world and the community and i admire it but it's not me yeah like my bubble is here yeah selfish i love it and like i i I, and i admire that in him yeah so yeah as as do i it's actually quite impressive yeah what did you take He's a good friend. What did you take from the conversations with David? Uh, the reality of different experiences regardless of commonality. Um, we talk a lot about that, you and I, regarding you not wanting to be, you know, speaking for all all black people. Right? I can't do it. We can't don't do all agree. It. And he's, uh, you know, as a Native American, he talks about how his family perceives the, the history of the community differently than he does and mm-hmm. how they go about acting and, and, you know, being who they are and going through life as a result. Um, and, and it just isn't something and it's a really good, you know, 
explanation of how not any, not everybody not not each person is wrong it's just they all have that different experience and we all have to really get to the root and understanding of why people think the way they do because we don't all think the same even if you think we do um and then you know voting like we talk about this and the difference between democrats and republicans and he answers the question i'll tell you why if, if you ask a, a republican what he does or she does they say they vote and uh, with midterms coming up um it's, it's just something that it just stuck with me. It's like, go out and vote. Do it. Do your your civil duty and go vote regardless. So, got to um, show up. You got to show up. Especially well, in the local elections, my people. Please show up. Totally. Um, but today we have Brittany. Um, Brittany is the founder and CEO of Elevation Society. She grew up in Texas and Florida. Um, and she, Elevation Society is is a nonprofit uh you know, dedicated to helping eliminate suicide. Um, she became introduced to the word suicide at a young age, a word that unfortunately has become increasingly popular. Seven letters put together that happened to be the second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 24. A uh, word that she wants to demolish, a term that motivates her daily. She believes if, if we're able to show others that we're worth fighting for, we may provide hope. Um, if we could open everyone's eyes to see the value in their life and help them feel the meaning beyond their flesh, we may be able to save lives. And what do mm -hmm. we talk about? I mean, I obviously, we talk about that. Just listening to you read that, I got inspired listening to her mission. So mm -hmm. we so we recorded this uh, a little ways back, uh, and it, it we talk about Stoneman Douglas, which is the school in Florida that had a shooting uh, earlier this year in 2018. And she actually went there when she was in high school uh, for at least for a period of time. So we talk about that a little bit and talk about growing up as a mixed race kid uh, for her and what that means for her, um, possibly different than the way you may think about it when you hear mixed race. And we talk about Elevation Society quite a bit. We talk about the business and the numbers around suicide. And like, it's just, uh, yeah, we get into that. Uh, what else? Yeah. I mean, we do spend a lot of time there and just what they're trying to do to help demolish uh, the word suicide. So we really hope you enjoy the show. It's a great episode. So I wanted to share a couple of quick notes about Elevation Society before we get into this. You can find the website at theelevationsociety.org. That's T-H-E-E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y.org. Elevate theelevationsociety.org. Uh, to this point, they've already impacted more than 13,000 lives. Over 5,000 people are part of their community. You know, go check them out, support, and you can also find the app that we mentioned briefly towards the end of the conversation. Uh, you can find it in the app store. And so I know in the iTunes store and probably in the Google store as well, it's Elevate with an eight with a number eight society. So E-L-E-V, the number eight society is the name of the application. All right. I also want to throw a big shout out to Anthony, Tony Matches, McKetty for doing a lot of the editing work up front on this and many episodes. Thank you, man. Couldn't do this without you. Um, knowing that, well, I believe everyone was created for a purpose, but knowing that my, like my life is bigger than me, if that makes sense. Knowing even when I'm defeated, even when I'm tired, knowing that it's for a bigger picture for the most part. That it's not just like, just like letting myself down. I am kind of feel like I, I, there's a lot I have to do. <laughs> so I never want to give up. I think always listening, um, being like, and not just listening with your ears, but like being open to what other people are saying, because I think a lot of parents, people, are so entrenched in their own beliefs that they limit their um, listening skills to just the surface.
right, welcome to, or welcome back to More In Common. Today, Keith and I are talking with Brittany Chung. Brittany, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Fantastic. <laughs> Always fantastic. It's a lovely overcast day here in LA. Yes. <laughs> we can we we definitely complain about that a lot out here, but mm. it doesn't happen. Yeah. Often, so. I I live in one of the cloudiest cities in the entire United States, so complaint not paid attention to. <laughs> so so Brittany, we absolutely want to get to talking about what you do today but it would be lovely to start with maybe some of your background like where you come from um your family if you want to go into that and kind of understand how you how you made it out here to LA doing all the fantastic and amazing things that you're doing today yeah so um I was born in Connecticut which is random um but then my I was raised in Florida and Texas and then I went to college in Miami and then um, after college, I thought I was going to be able to go home and stay with my parents for like maybe a month or two, but they were like, no. <laughs> so I came out to LA. <laughs> um, it's been fun ever since. But um, yeah, that's kind of where I've lived. Um, from a background standpoint, my dad was born in Japan. Um, my mom is African American. So they're a really interesting couple. And they're still together, which is amazing. They're my favorite people. But um yeah, so growing up from two different cultures was kind of interesting. Yeah, um, but it was cool. <laughs> um, what's what, what, the term? Uh, was it hapo for like a mi- uh, Japanese American mix? Is yeah, that- and now there's like for from what I was called when I was little, there's like blackenese and like <laughs> blackenese. Yeah, there's another one, but I forgot. But yeah. So many different terms. <laughs> Absolutely, right? Because we just we can't just go with the ones that are given. We gotta yeah. make up new ones. Um, so, 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 how long were you in Connecticut? You were born in Connecticut, so I take it you didn't live there very long. I didn't. I don't even really remember anything. I think I was in. It was before I started school, so I think I went to like nursery. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where, where, where in Florida, and then where in Texas? Um, in Florida, I lived in Coral Springs, Broward County area for a while. And then Texas was Allen, Texas, near Dallas. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, if I'm not mistaken, you went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I did, yes. How long ago was that? Um, I, not to age you, but... Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> um, I went to... I graduated high school in 2009, but I left Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in 2008. To, my parents moved to Texas in the middle of high school. So was, yeah, so then I started my junior year of high school in Texas. Okay. Now, have you had any emotional response to what happened a couple months ago? Yeah, I mean, um, when I when the, the very day it happened, my best friend texted me. Because I grew up in Coral Springs. So like That's where I spent the majority of my life from pretty mm-hmm. much baby all the way to high school. Um, and Coral Springs and Parkland is such a small community where it's like, you know, you grow up, you do intramural sports, like it's just, you know, where everything is. Um, and so when the day that it happened, my best friend texted me and she was like, there's a school, uh, a shooting at, at Stoneman Douglas. And so then I like Googled it real quick and I was like watching the live feed, um, when they were still trying to capture the kid and like, I'm watching these kids like running out of the halls and I'm just like. Because I, I haven't necessarily looked at the school since I've left there until mm-hmm. this happened. And I'm, like, looking at, like, the courtyard where I used to hang out. And I'm, like, watching these poor kids, like, running for their lives. And I'm just kind of confused and kind of um, upset and just, like, didn't really know how to process the emotions, especially at that time. Because it just feels, like, so surreal. Yeah. And, um, I mean, the more the story started to like come out the more like devastating it became you know first it was like they didn't know if there was any deaths and then it was like there was a few deaths and now they're like we don't know how many and then there were 17 so it's just like it was an emotional roller coaster um it was really upsetting and for me i one thing that i i um i guess i've noticed and i'm really proud about is the way that this the students have like set, like set up for the most part and kind of not like taking a stand and i think that has been super progressive with where we're going um, but also like taking leadership at such a young age. So it makes me really proud to be like, yeah, I went to Douglas because um, I think as a community, we're all kind of stepping up and just kind of 
taking responsibility, you know? What about that community is it that caused these kids to feel empowered to do what they did from your perspective? You lived there, right? And there have been a lot of communities impacted by gun violence that haven't necessarily, you know, stood up and spoken out and created this rallying cry, but it happened there. Um, being that you live there, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Like what it was about that community that, that might be unique? I do think that, um, it's a good question. I do think that one, they weren't, they weren't necessarily, like, I do think that they get, they were given a platform. Um, I do think that, that when they were given it, they were properly used. And there were some people that definitely stood up and like, like Emma Gonzalez, like there were some people that were like the leaders at the forefront of this actual movement. And I think because they had leaders like that, it was easier to bring everyone else up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that was influential. I do think from that Coral Springs pipeline area, it, it is a really great community. Um, I know that teachers were involved when it came to like, you know, prepping them for media and getting them all prepared for that. Um, I do think that they do have the resources to be able to um, kind of fund it. But I do think it also is the timing as well. I think because we're so like, this is happening more and more that at this point, everyone is kind of like over it. And I think because of that, there's so much more support because it wasn't like, like, I think a few years ago when it happened and it wasn't as common, we thought like, oh, this won't happen again. But now we're seeing this trend that we're like, we have to stop it. So now there's more people taking it seriously and more people supporting these kids because it's like, this is not that we can't let our kids grow up this way. Um, so I do think it's more of a wake up call than it's ever been before because it's becoming way too common. I saw um, a few weeks back, I, I was at this... Um big event by this this group called we or and the event was called we day and cameron and is it jacelyn I don't, I don't know how to say her name honestly but i saw them speak um i think they were on stage with jennifer aniston and it's just it's powerful like they um i i agree with you like they have the resources obviously their parents are helping and um people that have experience in running very mature campaigns because they are they are coached and trained like they are they're going um and i think they probably had some connections elsewhere because like they got airtime and and recognized um pretty immediately and so that is it's been fantastic um it's been it's been good to see it'll be interesting to see what comes like what continues to come from it i hope they keep growing um, I know we're following it and trying to s- figure out like where we can help, but yeah. And I think they've done a, a really good job so far also because like the exporting goods and like other people, um, other companies are starting to take a stand with what they're selling. And like, so I think that even though government isn't necessary and governments, tr- some people in government are trying. Um, but I do think that they are taking steps, even if it's baby steps right now towards uh, MRC. Florida, Florida passed, uh, pretty aggressive especially for the state of florida (laughs) well i mean so it's uh you pointed to resources namely money um and the people around the students realize that the only way and i mean we're in a capitalist society and the way way to affect change is through money you know the questions that he asked uh rubio like the questions he asked were like wait are you going to continue to support the gun lobby or allow the gun lobby to support your campaigns like will you stop taking money from them and he went directly to the heart of the issue like we talk about all this other stuff but that's the only way to affect change and that you know they've they've been they understand that and now they're starting to go after companies like all right well maybe he will or he won't but now they're making it very well known that like all right well rubio is going to take money from gun lobby so if you don't support the gun lobby you shouldn't vote for him and uh, it's it's a fantastic i think uh representation of how government should work i think it's i it was a unique opportunity to ask some you know questions given that you have a personal tie to that community and I appreciate you obliging that dialogue but i do want to go back to your background because yeah. there's there's something that's interesting. We talk a lot about it. Rodney recently um, blogged about this 
in raising a mixed child, right? A mixed race child, which we often think of white and black, right? You are Japanese and African American. Now, what was that like? How did that impact growing up? I mean, especially growing up in Florida and Texas. And you talk about all the names you were called. Have you been considered black your whole life? at the same time or by Um, other people uh, not necessarily by yourself obviously yeah i think it's really interesting um because ironically from japanese people or not not all but a lot of full japanese people especially from japan think i'm only black and then sometimes black people think i'm only japanese so Mm. everyone's always um inquisitive (laughs) um but from a background background standpoint um, Coral Springs, where I grew up, or yeah, Coral Springs. It was there wasn't many people that looked like me. Um, it was it was a little different. So especially when I was younger, it was I think I, I think everyone kind of goes through this. But you kind of I, I never really felt like I ever belonged <laughs> for the most part, which I think worked out in the end because it made me feel comfortable, like everyone. at an earlier age, to be okay yeah. standing out. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm grateful for it, but I think growing up, I always wanted to like look like everyone else who looked who was around me. You know, I always wanted like blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, like I dyed my hair blonde now, but like <laughs> I always wanted to look differently. Um, and I think it, it it forced me to accept myself a little bit sooner than um, I would have probably like than most people. I think because I was just so I was I started to become comfortable just not being like everyone else or not like looking like a lot of other people. So that was interesting. <laughs> we, um, the interview we did yesterday, the woman we interviewed as a photographer and she just did this interesting, this really cool photo series of re- representing, uh, African Americans in a Renaissance, um, type style and setting. Yeah. And afterwards I, I was fortunate enough. I got to go through a tour with her And Keith, you don't know this yet, but two of the women that she photographed are mixed race. And as a result of this, I was so one of the things she wanted to do was like represent um, black people the way she sees them. So as kings and queens and confident and and wealthy and like a lot of good things to add to society, not seeing them as thugs and and drug dealers and like all this other stuff. And so afterwards, um, one of the women uh, said that this was fascinating for her because this is how she she's always seen herself as a strong black woman but it's not how other people have seen her so it kind of it gave her a way to represent to others which how she sees herself yeah. um, whereas her whole life she's kind of been like this pull of like for her white and black mm-hmm. um, so i think about it a lot because my little girl my, my wife is uh white white what is that like she's irish german lebanese so um my little girl's gonna be mixed and she's gonna have like it's interesting because you were like oh i want to be like i want to look like that blonde hair blue eyes or whatever but we all go through that to a degree yeah i want to look like something else that i then i already am but I, i it seems like the mixed child experiences it just in a unique way and um yeah did you identify with one more than the other or do you uh, identify with one more or the other? I identify equally with both. Yeah, I identify equally with both. Did your parents expose you to both cultures equally or just? I mean, to an extent, like from their family. Um, my dad, ironic, well, he was born in Japan, but he was adopted in the States. So mm-hmm. his, um, I, <laughs> it's an interesting story, like his adopted parents, which are my grandparents, are Chinese and Japanese. So, and it's just interesting in and of itself because historically yeah. they don't get along no. um, and they met in Japan and then they raised my son. So it's, it's a very long story, but, um, that all, all, with all that being said, the most I get to, from the culture perspective is from my grandma, cause she was, you know, born in Japan, raised in Japan and then came to the States. Um, but my dad's not as like he'll eat Japanese food, <laughs> but he doesn't talk Japanese. Pretty American. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> pretty American and then my but my mom's side um, their their ancestry comes from Cape Verde Island so my grandma teaches me stuff about that but um, even that's limited too so yeah uh, Hapa 
a person who is partially of Asian or Pacific Islander descent, typically Pacific Islander, like uh, Hawaiian. Yeah. It's just I, I knew I heard it in college somewhere, so I had to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's one of those there's moments. The rabbit. There's the rabbit. <laughs> um. So, do you think? So, so you didn't grow up exposed to the language or to Japanese or anything. You are, do you, do you only speak English? I only speak English. Yeah. Interesting. So, how did that like having it? It molded how you perceived yourself, and you jumped. I mean, you you lived in Florida, Texas, of course, back in Florida for college, yeah. and now you live in LA. Like, how was that? cultural mix which isn't you know something we hear a lot about at least from a, a me like the the the, the pale cons- complexioned <laughs> individual right the white dude in the podcast <laughs> um, like how did that impact you because that's in those places i imagine like you said there aren't a lot of people that look like you and if there's a mix of black and white they're probably they they just considered black because that's what we do right and then um but but it's unique for you, right? So how did how did that frame up your your overall experience socially and ultimately bringing you to to where you are today, which we'll get to here in a few minutes. Yeah, um, I think when it comes to, I guess moving to different areas, um, I I feel comfortable kind of being around any different race, if that makes sense. Um, because I have been, I am different races, but I've also been around, like, I just feel comfortable, like, I don't, I don't know if that made any sense. <laughs> uh, it actually, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> it does, I, I yeah. have a really good, I have a really good white friend here, and he was like, honestly, like, we're, we're really close now, and he's like, he's like, if I'm being real honest, like, it took me a while to be com- comfortable around black guys. Like, I just, he'd never been around them. Like, he yeah. lived in Texas and up Pacific Northwest, and he's just like, I, I was never around him, so I, it's just different. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that's definitely been um, something. And then because I have moved, um, I, <laughs> I think, like, when I moved to my school in Texas, it had, like, 5,000 students. And oh, wow. I know. And then it was, like, Allen, um, Texas is one of those places you were born and raised. <laughs> Everyone knows each other. So coming in the junior year of high school is a little... Uh, interesting <laughs> yeah were you what was your like when your parents are like all right we're packing up we're moving mid high school you're like you're probably gearing up for graduation all that kind of stuff like what was that like i was devastated <laughs> um because coral springs is all i remember and it's where i grew up and it's where i had all my best friends and like i was like i was just involved with different sports and stuff so for me it was just like to move right in the middle of high school was, was not ideal um, yeah. <laughs> and then to move to such a big school where I didn't know anybody and I'm the only child too. So it was kind of yeah. like, you're moving, but you know, nobody, <laughs> yeah. um, you have no friends. And so it was, it was interesting. It was, it was, um, fun, <laughs> but it was intimidating. <laughs> what was the diversity? Um, but what was, what, uh, how much diversity was there in at your high school, especially at five thousand kids? Like that's an enormous <laughs> high school. Yeah, our, our graduation was quite long. Um, in Allen, Texas, I would say the demographic was probably the time I went was probably like I'll say sixty percent uh, Caucasian, and then maybe like fifteen percent uh, black, and then we'll say like 10% Hispanic, what's that, 25 or 60? And then the rest would be like Asian and other. <laughs> I was going to say like, I was going to say like 5% tumbleweed. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, so there was a, there was, I mean, there was certainly more diversity than what I grew up in in New Hampshire, but uh, so there was a decent amount of it, right. especially. Yeah. I, when I actually went to Allen, it was a little bit after Hurricane Katrina. So there was, um, quite a few people that were there from Louisiana as well, so they were relatively new too. Um, it's like, like new diversity from people migrating away from that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what? Are, how do people like when when people meet you? What do they assume? Do they assume you're Asian? I'm. I'm so well, I'm going to guess from my own experience when I looked at your Instagram page, I was like, oh, she looks Asian, and then I scrolled down, and I was like, no, 
her grandma's black. I was like, okay, okay, <laughs> she's probably mixed. I can't wait to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, I think usually people just kind of ask. Um, but a lot of times they'll seem like Hawaiian or something. Oh, yeah. That's mm. probably those. Yeah. And then when I lived in Florida, because there's so many, um, like, different cultures, a lot of times people thought I was Spanish or, like, Brazilian or, like, everything. So I feel like I've heard pretty much everything. <laughs> I've coined the term uh, ethnically androgynous. Um, <laughs> it doesn't fit for me, but for some people, like yourself or uh, Fred Armisen from Portlandia, can, yeah. can, can look like anybody. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> My brother. Yeah. So, so, so you say people ask... Like, what, what is that? You seem pretty comfortable with it. I mean, you're not, it isn't, it's not like something you clam up about. And I imagine people ask you a lot, Oh, where are you from? Like, what's your background? So, I mean, where, where do you stand when someone asks you, are you just open to it? You just answer the question or it's like, okay, enough already. No, no. I mean, usually people ask, where are you from? And then I'm like, Texas. And then they're like, no, like, where are you from? And I think, and then I'm like, oh, you mean like what ethnicity? <laughs> um, but I don't mind answering it at all just because, I mean, I, I, I'm a very curious person too, so I like to ask questions. <laughs> yeah. What is that when people do that? Like, no, no, I'm actually American. Turns out you can look like this and be American. It's weird. So interesting. So I was watching um, W. Kamal Bell's show. Um, I, for whatever reason, always brain fart on the name it's a great show <laughs> and he was he was profiling the sick religion and the, uh, they they pronounce it sick according to the special some of them call it Sikh, but it's officially sick religion united and shades of america united shades of america thank you and the first guy he profiled is a fourth generation farmer, almond farmer, farmer. He wears his turban, all of these things. And at the end of the show, he closes up. He goes, the thing I need to get out of my head is when I see someone, especially of Middle Eastern descent, I think foreign. So my first question is, how long you been in the country? How long you've been here? And he's, he's there profiling and talking to a fourth generation American. Heck, that's more generations than I have in my family. But, you know, no one asks me, oh, how long you been in the United States? And so it's, it's a really interesting thing that I hadn't thought about until just uh, yesterday when I watched this episode. Um, and now you bring the, that up. It's kinda- it goes to the undercurrent of belonging. And like you talk to a lot of black folk and probably I'm um, probably middle eastern and all kinds of other folk like when that question gets asked there is a there there is a tone of oh you must not belong here that is unsettling like over time at least for me it's been like wait no i'm from indiana bro like i'm from the middle of the country um (laughs) it's and it and i think that's something that i don't know how you change that that's a that's a really really deeply ingrained bias that's like i think i think we change it one like Right. I'm going to I know now I'm not going to ask that question. Like when I ask someone where they from, I expect the answer, whatever the answer may be, whether it's, you know, Seattle or whether it's Afghanistan, like whatever, that's where you're from. Um, And then, you know, you can ask those questions. Oh, you know, what's your heritage? But, you know, at the same time, like I don't ask white people, oh, you know, what's your heritage? Because I'm not into entomology and it doesn't it doesn't interest me like it does. (laughs) Um, So. Kind of going back to this, you had made the mention after college, you thought you were going to go back home. Like, what was that like? I, my parents lived, when we moved to Texas, they moved to Allen, Texas, because there, it's a great uh, school district. Um, Dallas ISD wasn't as uh, recommended as Allen was, so they moved to the suburbs for me. But then when I graduated, they didn't want to stay in a house when it was just two of them. So they downsized and went to downtown Dallas and like, living it up and so I understood and when I went home like for a little bit I was like sleeping in their office because I didn't no longer had a room and so they were kind of like we love you Brittany but what's your next move and then I was like I guess it's not here <laughs> um so then yeah I, I was fortunate enough to have a job opportunity out here so I was like all right well I guess I'm going to California <laughs> um what was that first job um, so I worked for a talent agency um, as it first I worked in the mailroom <laughs> and 
And then I became an assistant to a comedy agent. So that was fun. Um, there was a lot of reading contracts. And um, at that time, the that agency specifically had a really good um, lineup for their comedians. So what my agent did was book them in like casinos or different tours and stuff. So it was interesting learning the back end of entertainment industry. What was your aspiration? What did you go to school for? Um, I went to school for broadcast journalism and then I studied psychology while I was there. Originally, I, I thought I wanted to produce TV shows and um, kind of like Oprah, like kind of do things and like, <laughs> you know, start different projects. Um, that was my aspirations. But then when I went to school and we learned mostly like broadcast journalism, so editing and doing for news and, you know, putting packages together so I can shoot and edit. Um, I didn't necessarily find my passion there as much as I thought I would. And so then when I graduated, I was like, all right, well, I'll just kind of figure it out. <laughs> and that's what, what brought me towards just, you know, doing the backside of entertainment. So what got you to what you're doing today? Kind of was like a wake up call to like start living your dream. Like don't get stuck into something um, so young and like start living in, in like a routine if that's not where you want to be. And so that was kind of my wake up call to start, you know, pursuing my passion and start to make a difference. And so um, obviously LA is super expensive. <laughs> so I had another opportunity that allowed me more flexibility with my schedule because when I was working at the agency, um, I also had another job. So I was doing like 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. there. And then I would go to my other job from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. So I was like hustling. <laughs> mm. And I had like, I was going like months without days off. And so um, it was, it was kind of like, is this worth it type of thing? And so I left my agency job on good terms, but I was kind of, I was like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's when I kind of started focusing more on my nonprofit. And so that's kind of the back end of it. <laughs> Had you started the nonprofit before you left all those jobs? You kind of made the way you said that I wasn't, or did you just go into it when you left those jobs, you knew the idea was there and you were just ready to commit to it. Like how did, how did it all come about? And then what is the Elevation Society? Yeah. So, um, when I left the job, when I left APA, I started to like start thinking about it. Um, and then I kind of started like dabbling and figuring out what I wanted to do with the nonprofit because I always knew the concept and the idea behind it, but I didn't really know the direction I wanted to go in. And so for me, it was kind of like when I left APA, I started to like think more about it and started to get a little bit more involved. But I became a 501c3 in 2016. Um, I left APA in probably like 20, I want to say 2014. And so in between those two years, that was a matter of like me figuring out what I wanted to do and me having like little events here and there and getting people involved and, and doing things that way. Um, so I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it does. How, tell us about the Elevation Society. Yeah, so Elevation Society is a, a nonprofit that show, that we're focused on showing everyone their lives worth fighting for. Um, our goal is to end suicides and specifically targeting young people. And the back end of that story is when I was in college a little bit before, like one of my friends took her own life, and that's when I started to like started to become familiar, not familiar, but we started to like realize that this is an issue. Um, and so that's when I was doing more research and started having like, you know, little like, I guess we'll call them footprints that started to happen. And then it's like, it grew into Elevation Society. Um, but that's when I was first introduced to the idea because I was like, I think when everyone, when anyone is dealing with like someone like loss of suicide, you kind of question what you could have done differently. And that's, that's kind of what catapulted the idea. But yeah, Elevation Society is our goal is to show everyone the lives we're fighting for. And through that, we've been doing events. Um, we're working on after school program. We've done different create opportunities. And then we have an online community. So, Well, uh, sorry to hear that. That is, I mean, it's obviously tragic. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to see how you've taken that and turned it into um it, it kind of an answer to that question like what could you do like you're doing it you're you're helping others and you're trying to end uh this huge huge problem right now um i'm curious as to like when you think about 
um, suicide right now, especially with the, the teen numbers. I, I, I was at a boys and girls club, um, luncheon recently and the teen numbers like stood out to me Yeah, and I have a couple of thoughts as to why, but like, I'm curious as to you, you're doing this day in and day out. Like what, what are you seeing that's causing this and how are you, how are you approaching, um, conversations with, with young folk? Yeah. So, um, when it comes to the causes from what the studies that I've been researching, I've noticed that a lot of people are correlating it with technology and like the rise of social media. And then the fact that there's cyber bullying, so kids can't necessarily get away from bullying the way they used to. And it's consistently there. Um, you know, these unrealistic expectations because also for these, the rates, when it comes to suicide, there's a lot, there's more males that commit suicide, but there's more women that attempt suicide. Um, and so it, uh, the only reason why there's more six, the only reason why there's more males is because they use more um, lethal methods. So firearms as opposed to poisoning. So it, it's interesting because it also shows you like a trend in that in and of itself. Um, but I think that I, I could see where there is, I don't think technology is to blame per se, but I do see where there's a correlation to like, like them influencing a young person's mind. Um, and then in regards to what I've noticed is like, with my nonprofit, I've had a lot of parents reach out to me. Um, and so it kind of opened my eyes to see that like kids aren't necessarily that comfortable talking about how they feel, talking about like their weaknesses. And then a lot of times it's hard to, you have to understand what you're feeling in order to, to articulate it. And a lot of times, especially at a younger age, you don't necessarily understand. And, um, for me, that was- I'm 30 and I barely, and I can barely yeah. articulate it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my thirties. Yeah. Yeah. You're a little older than 30. 30. Like, You're yeah. a little older than 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took a few years off there, but uh, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> oh, definitely I get why it's not for, for, for children. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But I, I think that, that, that was a really big um, thing that I noticed is how often kids don't necessarily talk about it. And so when you, it's like, you're kind of suffering in silence because when you're not talking about it, no one can be there if they don't know what's wrong. And so um, with Elevation Society, what we've been focusing on this year specifically is building these events that will allow kids to kind of come together, but open a safe space for people to start talking about, you know, emotions, start talking about mental health, start talking about very taboo subjects that we tend to shy away from because um, I think it's really important. And at this point, if I'm able to build a community, a support system for other kids, and it's like we might be able to, you know, address issues more head on than we were kind of going about our lives now. Mm-hmm. No, it makes perfect sense. And when I heard the numbers and I mean, maybe you could share some of the rates and numbers with us, yeah. it would be interesting. Um, I immediately wrote down social and started thinking about how an event that happens in, say, high school, mm-hmm. um, how social makes it so it doesn't end per se and it's amplified like whereas it might have been contained to your classroom or to your group of friends or like a couple groups of friends or maybe your grade even now it's like the whole school and all the schools around you and the nation and you know and it's like the i I can only imagine that the feeling of that pressure can yeah it could be a lot Um, yeah i know like there was um recent incidents where there is like very young like i think there was a few incidents. There's like a girl who was eight year old or like a, a, a little boy who's eight years old. A little girl who's like 11 years old. And they actually took their life um, largely based off of the fact that like one of them was a girl got in a fight or like was being bullied. She got in a fight with the bully and then they recorded it and she kind of, I guess she didn't do so well in the fight, but then they put that on musically and like then it went viral. And so like she took her own life. And then, um, like, another little boy, I think he got beat up in school. And, like, there's just so many different things that, that keep, yeah, that, to your point, keep, like, the pain keeps going. Like, you're consistently reminded of it. And then you're being made a fun of by strangers. And, like, you're, you're eight years old. You can't, like, comprehend that. You're not, no one really should. And, and it's just kind of, it's sick. It's like it's made because kids, I mean, there's that, that kids are cruel or not kids are cruel. Kids can be extremely cruel. Yeah. Um, and it's like giving them a tool to take that to heights that yeah. they're they're not responsible enough to use. Right. And it's even like it's even like back in the day, like 
if I got in a fight, I would get in a fight and then we were best friends later that day or, but, but now you don't even have that chance to reconcile. Cause it's like, uh, like now somebody's made a meme out of it or a video yeah. or music. Like that's, man, that's wild. No, no. So two things, one, what are the numbers that you focus on? And two, what do you see as some of those like when you interact, you interact with these parents, you interact with these kids. What are you seeing more and more of as a as a reason for these these feelings that these kids are expressing once you get them to express it? I think um, a lot of times it boils down to self-worth. Um, a lot of times it boils like I think uh, friend, this is the thing about the whole nonprofit and tackling this issue specifically is it's such a complex issue. And it's so many different layers and there's so many different factors that that even myself, I get extremely overwhelmed because some people have traumatic experiences and, and some people, you know, they're just clinically depressed, not just just but like they're clinically depressed. And so there's just so many different factors, especially because there's different age ranges, too. So like older people might be experiencing more financial issues. So the issue in and of itself is such a complex issue that I'm still trying to figure out. I think everyone's still trying to figure out sure. like there's not a one size fits all, unfortunately, um, solutions, but I think it's a matter of finding the solution best for your audience. And so for me, I've noticed a lot of it's been like self-worth. A lot of it's been like, you know, like a lot of it's boiled down to extremely low, unhealthy levels of self-esteem and, and that there's other people who I've like read, like talked to you that are like, you know, I'm not, there's nothing necessarily that stood out. Like they didn't experience traumatic experiences. They just have these feelings of clinical depression. They're just consistently down and they can't understand why. So um, I think it's such a, a vast array of different answers for the most part. Um, the only reason why I say I don't think technology is to blame is because I think it's, it's not the, like it's not the it's not causing it it's exacerbating whatever the underlying issue actually exactly. is yeah exactly yeah. perfectly stated um and so i think that with society as a whole you know for young people you're having these very very high unrealistic expectations consistently in your face especially through social media um and then it's like this consistent like we're growing up in a very tough time and young people now are having to like worry about you know, gun shooting, like shootings at their schools, like there's so much pressure that it's like, it's becoming a little bit harder for them to go on a day-to-day basis. Um, but I don't know if that answered. No, it, it, it that answers that, that point. Now, what the, the other question was the numbers, like, yeah. so I'm going to add a second piece into that. What age group do you focus on? And then what are the numbers? Yeah. Yeah. So age group that I focus on is roughly 15 to like, well, roughly 15 to 30. Um, and because of suicide being the second leading cause of death of that age range. So um, the, it it's kind of, it's scary, but it's also like, there's some, it, to me, suicide's a preventable death. And the fact that young people are taking their lives um, and it's the second leading cause of death is kind of a wake up call. Um, and then in regards to like overall numbers, like one every 40 seconds, another person loses their life to suicide worldwide. It's a massive issue for me, like on my board, it's kind of random, but like I have a vision board, not a vision board, but like a wake up call. And it says, like, I wrote people are dying from preventable death. And then I crossed out people and I wrote children are dying from, from preventable deaths because it's, it's like, these are babies, you know? And so they don't even know what life really is. None of us really do, but like, especially when you're not even like a quarter of your way there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of why I focus on them. Mm. Well, that's, it's amazing. Like I said it before and I'll say it again. I'll probably say it again later, but like the mission is admirable and, uh, yeah, it's, it's needed work. How do you get people to engage when, as you said, I mean, one of the biggest challenges, especially when it comes to depression or other things like this sense of loneliness and that no one understands me. So who am I really going to talk to? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you get kids to, to, to come to you or you go, like, how does that work? What is that? What is your community outreach, uh, um, 
function? How does that, how does that yeah. actually play out? So, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of, about the backstory, I guess, of Elevation Society is, so I always started off with the idea of showing people their lives are worth fighting for it. And originally I thought I could do so by um, offering really cool, fun volunteering opportunities to get people to give back. Because I think volunteering once it's like scientifically, it's, there's a lot of benefits from it and helping other people. But it also shows you that like you have purpose, like you have power. Like when you're seeing your life in action and like seeing the difference that you're making in someone else's life, you start to realize that you're important. You know what I mean? And so that, that was the whole idea that I started off with Elevation Society. So we had like, we had 18 events, but we had like an event every month. Like we would go down to Skid Row, we would um, go to elderly centers, and then there was different events in between. And it also in between that, I also had opportunities for people to create. So personalize the idea of giving back. So for instance, um, like a girl I know who's a baker, she basically... Um, I was like, what are you passionate about? It was baking and kids. So we brought her to a, a Colette Children's Home, which is a homeless shelter for kids. Um, and we like taught them how to bake and like mentored and made unicorn cupcakes. And then for a lawyer, we brought him in into like an underserved area. And he kind of educated the kids about knowing your rights. But he was also there to show himself as a role model because he was somebody who was a lawyer, had dreads, who looked just like these kids. And, you know, a lot of them are so used to wanting to pursue like football or different musical careers that they weren't necessarily um, shown many lawyers that looked like them. So it was a matter of like individualizing what those people were really good at and kind of growing from there. Um, so that's kind of where I started with Elevation Society. But along the, the way, I realized that like even getting people to get out and volunteer, you still have to be a certain type of person. And so it's like I'm reaching a very small demographic and, and those people are, are, you know, feeling the difference that they're making, but I'm still kind of missing a big core of who I want to be helping. And so this has been a revelation for like the past five months. And that's why with these events that we have upcoming, um, they're not necessarily, I guess, marketed and broadcasted as like, you know, a self-help, like mental health type of thing. It's more so disguised as like a really cool event that I would want to go to or anybody else would want to go to just for fun that then we can start to, you know, kind of weave in, um, not so broad in your face because I think even with, with that people kind of shy away from but kind of creating like fun atmospheres so like for instance one of the events we'll have in the summer is kind of like a bonfire type event so like you know bonfires are, are very universal and very fun and like just getting friends together is a lot more appealing than it would be if I was like come and learn about mental health and come learn from professors you know so it's like trying to make, and, and that's been the hardest thing is like reaching that age demographic because there's so many nonprofits that are doing such amazing things for suicide prevention, but there's such broad um, audience that I don't necessarily, like from my standpoint, if I'm like, if I was me or younger, I wouldn't necessarily be, um, it, it's not necessarily touching them directly, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And mm -hmm. so that's. So for, for us, it was like, okay, let's get super creative. So like, what would you want to do on a regular basis? Or like, what's something that you could see yourself doing that's not as abrasive, but kind of more appealing and fun? Something, and like, yeah, something that's going to draw people in. Because I, I know for me, like, I would never have gotten anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> and now I love talking about mental health. So and then, Yeah. <laughs> and then in regards to like those people that don't necessarily even want to go out to, you know, different events, like, that's what we're trying to work on a lot is the online community. And so people can read different resources. So um, they can talk about different areas like on, on the online community, we'll repost different things. So like wall street journal had an amazing article about the food that you eat and how that kind of um, plays in depression. And so um, different resources like that or different blog posts or different testimonials. If we find them, we'll always try to put them on our page so that people who might be going through hard times, whether it is, um, a really bad breakup that they're going through, whether it is, you know, just hopelessness that they're feeling, they can go through and read like a bunch of inspiration. And I, eventually I want to build it to a community where it's kind of a support system where they'll get like instant, um, like communication with other people and kind of like a support group online. And that's where I want to go with this. Um, and so that's the future plans. But as of right now, we're just trying to offer a lot of resources that people can read on their off time if they don't feel like leaving their house or talking to anybody. And then also providing like the resources. So if they do want to call, you know, the suicide prevention hotline, which is actually more so an emotional support line that doesn't necessarily 
you don't need to call me if you're just suicidal, but they're there they just listen. And so offering different things like that. And then also educating because, you know, when it comes to clinical depression, there's different ways and everyone's different. So some people might respond better to cognitive behavioral therapy. And so just kind of, you know, introducing some different types of ways that they might be able to um, help deal with their clinical depression or help deal with their suicide ideations, um, I think is also super important what we've been working on as well. And so, you know, support groups, like if you want to go to a support group, here's a list of areas. And so that's what we're kind of trying to do for everyone, I guess. Thinking about like at risk, like within that age range that you focus on, are there any groups that are at higher risk based on certain factors like like uh, school shooting at their school or um, family trauma? Like, are there things that you're aware of that put people at higher risk? And then like, are you are, are there mechanisms to target those groups? And I'm assuming for a lot, there's not because you wouldn't know if somebody's having trauma at home unless they were talking about it. Yeah. But. Yeah. There's um, when it comes to like, clinical depression, there are different factors like um, biological. So um, heredit- not hereditary per se, but like if your family, you have a family history of people who are, who were dealing with clinical depression or who were suicidal, um, it increases their child's likelihood of it. It does. It's not like it's a passed on gene. Like, like it's not like there's one gene that you send over. But it scientifically, they've said it has enhanced the chances of one the likelihood. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so uh, there's if you look at people's like genetics, there's different areas that are more prone to. Like it's it's a composition of different things. If that makes sense, as opposed to just oh, yeah. one. Um. So I know genetics has a big influence on it. And then obviously, you know, trauma from childhood and like stuff like that is massive when it comes to it. And then, you know, different things like homelessness, you know, those that are homeless and they never or those that were um, not homeless as much as they were um, fostered children for the most part. Like those that were foster children and never got adopted or like after the age of 18 have nowhere to let's say like they're higher at risk. So there's a lot of different um, avenues that kind of play into that. Um, and and for us, it's like, I I think we're kind of focused on the, like everyone per se, that we haven't necessarily reached out to specific groups yet, um, just because we're still trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with this issue that we want to kind of open it up. But then I think once we're able to get a handle on it and once we're able to start to see like, definite solutions i think that's when we'll be able to start targeting and catering towards other groups as well that makes sense you're in your experience you talk about parents calling you asking you what role is this is an interesting one i'm sure every parent um who you you say anybody who's around someone who who commit suicide always asks what could I have done more and every parent will take that to a personal level and so when you when you talk about it, it's like I think about the technology and you tell me about an eight-year-old and 11-year-old and it makes me want to go curl up in a corner and not know what to do. But like, what role do parents play in helping prevent this? And maybe what what difficulty is it for parents to make sure that they enable or give kids their the resources necessary, you know, because I think about your online presence that has far reaching effects more than the, the community of L.A., right, where your events will be. And, you know, just being able to say, hey, go here or go do this or check this out. Right. Like, how does that play out? Because it is a difficult thing for kids to talk to about with their parents. And, uh, you know, it's a convoluted, non direct question. But I think I, I got my point across. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, um, when parents would reach out to me, I was like, like, I, can, I can't even imagine because it's like, you only want the best for your child. And for something that there's no real, like, physical solution to um it has to be in like i can't i can't even imagine um and so with them like what i've been telling them is um what i've also i've been forced telling them about like seeking professional help so you know you know maybe going to see like a clinical psychologist or a therapist and maybe going to support groups like having her go to support groups and so um offering that but then i'm also kind of like from what i've noticed is what has helped certain people is, you know, what, what is your kid? Like, like first talking, being open and honest and talking about, you know, letting them know that you're there, 
letting them know that they're loved, um, instilling confidence at a very young age because this world is very cruel and very hard. And so if you're able to instill it and let them know that they are loved, they're like, they are who they are. They were created the way that they were. There's nothing wrong with them. I think once they're able to have that foundation and strong foundation, that will do wonders for them when it comes to growing up. Because then if they know that they have a strong support system at home, if they know who they are at home, then it's like, no matter what people try to tell them, they're already, you know, they're, they're more confident. And so I think that's extremely important. But I also think that helping them find those things that they are passionate about, you know, helping them find those areas and helping them, you know, getting them involved at a really young age and like giving back and, you know, like whether it's going to the local um, homeless shelter or whatever it is, like showing them the world and showing them what's going on around them, I think is also very important as well. And showing them that, you know, there's so many different people in this world and that you can do something with your life that will no one else can do because you're so special. Like things like that, I think are extremely important when it comes to um, helping their kids. Because I think a lot, of, a lot of times along the way, especially high school, and I, and I can speak for myself, but like middle school, you're so easily impressionable and you're so like focused on all of the wrong things. For girls, I know a lot. It's like you just want to be considered pretty. Like you, your, your, your mind is just so like focused on just superficial ideas that you're kind of like it's easy to then feel empty, even if you are searching for those superficial ideas. It's so easy for you to feel like worthless if you just want to be pretty like there's so many different factors into that and so I think um a lot for girls it's it's just super important that at a young age they know that they're loved that they're important that they are who they are like there's nothing wrong with them because I think society thrives off of picking out what's wrong with people so that they buy their products and and that's not healthy but that's their marketing mechanism so you can't fault them for it but that's then our responsibility to like you know have these kids grow up in a strong foundations for the most part and and i and i for parents that have lost their kids to suicide i would never blame them for it because there's so many different factors and there's so many times that like you did nothing wrong you know and it's Mm. just it's it's like it just like i don't know i don't know how to properly like say it because there's nothing that you can say to like consult them but like for those that have lost their kids i just would like them to know that they didn't do anything wrong Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna no, let that, that sit was, for a second. Yeah, that's what I was. That's actually what I was gonna ask you next. Um, the on the um, and young men do it too, like looking good and like. But I, I yesterday, I was in the parking lot, and I saw there must have been a ballet class starting. Or a dance class. And I'm going to guess that the age range was... I'm, I'm terrible at guessing age, so it's, a, it's just a guess. It was somewhere it was like five to... No, it was like six to nine. Um, but I... So, I assumed it was a dance class because of what they were wearing. And then I was like, but what the hell is happening? Like, so, cars around me, there were probably five people getting out of their cars and trying to go. Of those five, three of the moms were putting... And they were all moms dropping them off. Three of the moms were putting makeup on at the car of the, for the little girls. And like, and I'm talking heavy, 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 heavy makeup. And I'm like, and and I don't personally have a problem with little girls wearing makeup, but I'm like, what are we, the thought that went through my head and that I then conveyed to my wife is what are we teaching them? Mm -hmm. Like, is this about dance or is this about how you look going to dance or like what, what's happening here? And like, how are they supposed to feel good about themselves if they have to, paint their face or dress their face up to look different than they are. Like, how are they supposed to feel comfortable about who they are when that's the message at that age? Yeah. It was my immediate thought. When I was young, like I dealed with so much insecurity when I was younger and I probably bypassed this part before, but um, when I was, Oh my gosh, like I, I've dealt with a lot of insecurity. Um, When I was younger, my parents, I love my parents to death, but um, they put me in, like I used to go to casting calls and like, I was like young teenager. Um, and that I think had a massive impact on a lot of my insecurities because just going into a room and people judging you for like two seconds and being like, you're not good enough at the age of like, I don't know, 14 was a massive like hit to my self esteem. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up with a lot of insecurities. Um, I was okay and comfortable being myself, but I also had a lot of deep rooted issues of not feeling, um, 
like sometimes not feeling like enough. And that might be contradictory, but so I've dealt with a lot of those. Um, so I, I got where people could come from when they didn't feel confident. And I got where people could come from when they didn't know how important they were. And luckily, because my parents also instilled a really strong foundation in me um, in regards to like when I was younger, I, well, my grandparents did this, but when I was younger, I'd go to nursing homes and like sing to them. And because I had that root and foundation, I think I realized that it wasn't necessarily about like shallow, superficial ideas, like, you know, looks as much as it was when I would go into those castings. Um, and then um, with the online community, like it also, in, um, it also has those that are involved with the app as well. And the app is so you can find local places to volunteer, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Yeah, and okay. that that would that why it was it was kind of correlated with the um, nonprofit because it's like that was our whole idea, you know, give back, help others, show, see your meaning. Um, and then I wanted to be able to have a broad like reach, so you can do it really wherever you you are, um, and you can see like what's in your area. So, Brittany, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, we're gonna start to wrap up here in a moment, and I think I know your answer to this based on an answer earlier, but. What would you leave our listeners with? Like, wh- what do you want them to know? Mm. Uh, <laughs> I did mention this before, but I want you to know that um, there's a reason why you're here and that even if you don't see it now, you have meaning and there's purpose in your life. And so that's part of the fun about life is finding it as well. You don't have to just know it and you don't have to like figure it out. Well, it's always fun to figure it out, but you don't have to like, know it right off the bat 